The Old Testament reading for this Lord's Day comes from Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. It's on page 11 of the Pew Bibles. I'll give you a moment there to turn with me and read God's Word to us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This Old Testament reading recounts the third time God has appeared to Abraham to establish his covenant. The first time we see is in Genesis 12. He calls Abraham to leave the land he's in of his fathers, to trust him, and go to the land that God would show him. Then in chapter 15, God promises Abraham he will certainly give him a son in his old age. And God demonstrates he will be the one to keep the terms of the covenant. It won't depend on Abraham. Um, and that is where we see in the Genesis account that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, just like us. But now we have Genesis 17. In this account, God gives Abraham the most detailed descriptions of his promises to him. Uh, later in the chapter, he will give him the covenant sign. He's going to give him circumcision. And he'll set him apart from all the nations of the earth. Now, a lot of time has passed from when Abraham left the land of Ur. He was 75 years old when God appeared to him. Now he is 99 years old. And he still has nothing to his name except these promises. And so now, again, today, God appears to him. And God names himself, in this case, God Almighty, El Shaddai. It is somewhat difficult to translate, but it's something like God, the one who suffices. Your God is the one who suffices. He suffices for all of your needs, temporal and eternal, for things you, you can't suffice for, like having a child at 99 years old. And God is the Lord. He has authority. He can command Abram to walk before him. He has authority. He can rename Abraham, right? When Adam names the animals, he's showing his authority over creation. God names himself, and when God names someone, he is 
exercising his authority. And here God reaffirms the covenant he's made with him. The thing that is repeated over and over is God promises Abraham a people, a great people. In fact, that's what Abraham's name is changed to mean. It goes from Abram, exalted father, Abram, to Abraham. And that means father of a multitude. Abraham, fascinatingly, is named after his children. He's named after who will come from him because they will be a great people and they will be many nations. There will be kings. Royalty will descend from him. We can think of David. We can think of Solomon, of course, Jesus. And God's promise, Abraham's new name, indicates the certainty of this destiny. Right? And this promise that God gives to Abraham will go through generation to generation. God would uphold this promise to his offspring after him. Of course, the other promise we notice is to give him his own land, to be his everlasting possession in Canaan. God, though, makes the ultimate promise to Abraham. He makes it twice. He repeats it in 7 and 8. He promises this, I will be a God to you and to your offspring after you. This is the redemptive promise of God. This is the promise of God that holds the story of the Bible together. God promising to be a God to his people and, of course, the question, how will he do it? How will he do it when we stray from him? How will he do it in light of our sin? You can even think of the end of the Bible in Revelation where God and his people are now together. Right? God will be a God to you and to your children after you. This account recorded by Moses for the people of Israel after they fled Egypt would have been a message of hope. They were the nation, they were a nation with no land, with no identity, but they were promised to God, by, to Abraham. They have no land, they're wandering in the wilderness, but they will possess a land. And they had waited and waited. They'd been in slavery for 400 years, and now they were going to wander in the desert. They knew, like Abraham, who waited so many years for his son, God would be faithful. And most of all, the God who made this promise to them would make the same promises to them, and he would be a God in their midst. Of course, we see it in the tabernacle. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, God is among them. Well, what about for us today? God makes the same promise to us. In fact, we are from the line of Abraham. Galatians, Paul says, no, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. He says in another place, if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs to all of Abraham's promises. The promises being made to Abraham are being fulfilled. In fact, Israel, the original fulfillment of this, was only one nation. And Abraham's people, 
the people of faith, the true offspring of Abraham, were to be from many nations, like the nations you're from. And what is most important is, if you can be Abraham's offspring, you and I can receive this promise, that I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Amen. We are continuing, as I mentioned, Christ's Covenant's series and studies through the Apostles' Creed and have come to the belief about the Holy Catholic Church. Our sermon text is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. It's on page 1014 in the Pew Bible. And I will begin reading it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church? That might sound a bit strange as a question. We don't usually think about the existence of the church as something we need to believe in. And to many... Even wording the question this way sounds a little bit too Catholic for comfort. I think it would be similar, we think of it in a similar way as if someone said, do you believe in family? Do you believe in your family? Do you mean, do I believe in the idea of family or do I have confidence in the strength of my family? But let me word the question another way. Do you believe that Christ's saving work created the church and that you are a member of it? Now the answer seems obvious. But I think the centrality of the church as part of our faith has really fallen on hard times. Think of how lightly church membership is taken today. Even in churches with formal membership, and many don't even have that. Think about many of the reasons people give for leaving a church. Perhaps reasons you've given in the past. Think of how long it may have taken you to become a member of a church after you became a Christian. And today, even division is basically an accepted reality. 
Likewise, I don't know how much value the church is given in general. Certainly in the wider society, it's nearly nothing. But think of how casually in the church we can speak of missing church. I can't make it. Or if you were raised in the church, how little we consider it to be a blessing to have been raised in the church. And if you're a kid here today, I wonder how many times you've complained about having to go to church or how long church is taking on any given Sunday. So do we believe in the Holy Catholic Church today? Today we have the good news of the church here in 1 Peter. Peter writes this epistle to new Gentile believers in Asia Minor in what is modern-day Turkey. And this epistle serves as an introductory lesson for the young believers there. So he addresses topics like salvation, what their conduct is to be like, issues concerning persecution and suffering, and what we will be considering today, the church. In these few verses in 1 Peter 2, we learn that the church itself is part of the gospel message. Because the same work of Jesus Christ that saves you creates the church. So coming to Christ and joining the church are really two sides of the same coin. So first, we will consider the relationship between salvation and the church. Then, what we are being joined to when we join the church. And finally, who we are as the church. And all of this will help us see that because Jesus creates the church, to know Christ, to grow in him, we must believe in and be part of the church. First, Peter explains for us the relationship between salvation and the church. Peter calls the readers of this epistle newborn infants. They need to long for pure spiritual milk to grow up into salvation. And in verse 4, he also explains what else happens when they come to Christ. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. As they come to Christ, something else is happening at the same time. As they come to Christ, they are being built into a spiritual house. They are being built into the church. This is what I mean when I say coming to Christ and joining the church are really two sides of the same coin. Because coming to Christ is simultaneous as joining the church. And this is exactly what we see in the early church. Think about Pentecost in Acts. Acts 2 recounts Peter's great sermon, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the 3,000 people repenting and believing in the gospel. Let me turn there and read the very end of Acts 2. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 41. Look at what happens to those received the gospel that day. So it says in 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Hmm. 
So what were those 3,000 people added to? They were added to the fellowship with the disciples. It was a community defined by the teaching of the apostles, prayer, fellowship, and the Christian breaking of bread, which sounds to me like communion. They were joined to the church that day. The preaching of the gospel and their conversion led them directly into the church. There's a question out on the missions field that people often ask, and it's a good question. When is evangelism finished? Right? When can I have confidence that this person has responded to the gospel? And I was discussing this question with a wise older Christian once, and he told me evangelism isn't done until the person has made a profession of their faith before elders of a biblical church. Hmm. Evangelism isn't done until they are added to the church. Not when they pray a prayer, not when they sign a card or finish a follow-up Bible study, but when they're added to the church through baptism under the oversight of the leaders of the church. This is how God has made salvation to work. Now, this, of course, isn't to say we shouldn't share the good news with people we may never see again, or who may never join our church, we always leave the results of evangelism up to God. But the fruit of coming to Christ, as Peter says, is being built into the church, the spiritual household of God. We can speak this way about the church, not because of any institution, but because of the saving work of God. When the Holy Spirit works to save, he creates a new community in Christ's name. And this is what was intended in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is why Peter calls Christ the living stone, precious in God's sight. Jesus came to lay the foundation of the church. Thus, saying you need the church isn't like saying you need some ritual from some group of fallible men. It's simply saying you need all of the saving work of Christ. So, what is the church? The text uses two images to describe what the church is. He begins in verse 5. He says there are living stones being built into a spiritual house. They're being built into the architecture of a family dwelling. These stones, these living stones, Christians have a family identity together. And there are two things we should note about the household the community of the church is spiritual. It's a spiritual household. And this is what makes the church unique from every other kind of human bond that exists. We have many human bonds. We are members of a family. And these bonds are established by marriage, biology, adoption. We're citizens and members of a community that's established by geography, political ties, we're employees, we're business partners. We have many relationships that exist through these kinds of formal business contracts. Perhaps you're a member of a voluntary group that is based on some kind of mutual hobby or interest or concern. And these are all real human bonds. They all have a place. Those like the family are ordained by God. They're built into creation. 
But we also have a bond here in the church. But my bond with you and your bond with everyone else here is very different than these other bonds. It's not based on these natural realities we have in common. In fact, I would say it takes faith to see how we're related to each other. Our bond is built on a spiritual reality. Second, we should answer, how far does this spiritual household extend? Well, the household God has built extends beyond the people who are inside of these four walls. Christ's covenant is one local expression of the church and is part of that church, certainly, but is not the full extent of the church. We must learn to live as the church that extends beyond the church in this specific location. We can even see this in how Peter addresses his letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter writes his letter describing one household of God to Christians who are across Turkey. They're one spiritual household. This is what we mean when we say the church is Catholic, that it's universal. The communion of the church is not limited to one location. The true church is made up of all true churches in the world. Likewise, the Apostle John speaks of this one church extending across all of history even. In 1 John 1.3, we find this. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Today, Christians have fellowship with the apostles. Hmm. When you hear and receive the testimony of the gospel, you join the fellowship of the apostles. In this verse, John goes so far to say, we proclaim this message to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Here he speaks the reverse as Peter. He says, receive the gospel so that you can be joined to the church. Because community with the household of God unites us to God as well. Again, there is sometimes confusion when we talk about the Catholic church, this church that extends across the whole world, across all of time, is connected to the saints who have gone before us in heaven. Especially where we live, calling the church Catholic brings to mind the Roman Catholic Church, right? And it is true, their doctrine does claim to be the only expression of the one universal church on earth. This is, of course, very debated, but there are a number of somewhat obvious problems with this claim. First, a universal church cannot be the possession of one place like Rome. You can't be the universal church American or Roman. Second, and this is the fundamental problem, is no one church institution gets to make the exhaustive claim to be the universal church across all time and space. But the household of God indeed is Catholic. It does extend 
to everywhere, in all places and in all times, where people have faith in Christ. And then Peter describes what the household is for. What is the spiritual household built for? He says it's a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood that offers sacrifices acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. The household is a temple. God is building his sacred space where he will dwell with his priests and they will come and serve him and worship him. And there's only one temple being built. The church is the exclusive place of worship activity. No other religion, no other community gets this claim. There is one temple, but it is not in only one place. Unlike the temple of the Old Covenant in Jerusalem, God's sacred space is not in one location anymore. Because now God's sacred space is people. The temple is the people of God now. The church is the people of God gathered for worship. This is now where the work of priests are done. Of course, we think of priests primarily as those who offer sacrifices on someone else's behalf. That's not what we're talking about. The idea of priest has a more basic idea. A priest is one who serves God and has the right to access him. This is why you had to go to a priest. And there is one priesthood on earth today. It's the church. Only the church has access to God. Only this people is set apart for the service of him. And this is the reason Christ is building this household. To be a temple in his form. The church is built on Christ as the cornerstone and in the form of him. In ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the first stone laid at the foundation of any building. Every other stone had to be set in reference to this stone. It's actually amazing when you think about how they built these buildings. They used this one stone to determine how the angle of every wall would go up from there. So the cornerstone had to be a true square because this single stone determined the entire position, shape, and integrity of the architecture they were building. And likewise, this is how essential Jesus Christ is to the people of God. The status of the church and of the Christian depends on the status of Christ. And this would have been a controversial claim. All the Jews of Jesus' day knew these verses from the Psalms and Isaiah. They accepted God had laid a foundation for his people in Zion, in Jerusalem. They believed, they knew the world rejected their religion. They didn't worship their God. This is what set them apart from pagan nations. However, what they could not accept was when an itinerant preacher named Jesus applied this imagery to himself. That is what they rejected. They stumbled over the idea that this man who was crucified was the foundation for the salvation of God's people. There is indeed a great difference between the church and those who stumble over him. And so, what is that? What is it what sets the church apart from the world? 
Well, if Jesus' saving work creates the church, it's Jesus that sets the church apart. The church is unlike the rest of the world who disobey the world, word, I'm sorry, who disobey the word and reject Christ as the cornerstone. There are many things that don't set Christians apart, though. Christians are not set apart by where they are from or what language we speak or even some kind of extraordinary life we live. We are not set apart by a superior intellect. No, Christians are unlike the rest of the world because of Jesus. We aren't even set apart by our sinless state. We are set apart by Jesus and his forgiveness. We receive him as king and assemble as his church. More specifically, then, we would say we are set apart by the mercy of Christ. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is the object of the mercy of God. God does not look out in the world to build his household for those who will make a good team. He calls you and I out of darkness. He calls us out of sin to show us mercy, unmerited favor. And mercy, his mercy is what makes the difference. His mercy is what explains what's happening here. And Peter, then, in verse 9, goes on to describe what this mercy creates. This is what he says the church is now in Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, the church, those who trust in Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God has chosen you to be part of the people of God. And this people of God is a priesthood with an element of royalty. This priesthood belongs to a king and a kingdom. And royalty is inherited, not merited. What do I mean? This is actually one of the most disappointing things for most little girls. Because most little girls say when they're very young, when I grow up, I want to be a princess. The unfortunate news is unless your dad is a king already, you do not get to grow up and be a princess. It's not a job you can take. It's not a role you can acquire. You must be born into royalty. And the church is born in Christ's royal line. And he calls the church a holy nation. A nation is, of course, citizens in a specific place who obey certain laws and seek the good of their society. The church is the society of God. It's holy. Its citizenship is heavenly. They obey God's laws and seek his kingdom. Now this language, this privilege of being the church is breathtaking enough, but Peter is using these descriptions to actually make a bigger point. His point is this. The church now, made up of Jews and Gentiles, is the continuation of the people of God from the Old Covenant. The church is the Israel of God. He's quoting, actually, and you can turn with me if you'd like, to Exodus 19. God 
declares to Moses what he is to speak to the people of Israel. God is going to tell Israel who they are. I'm going to start, I'll just read verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. All the earth is mine, and you shall to be me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The words God commanded Moses to speak to the people of Israel, that they are his treasured possession, they're a holy nation, they are a kingdom, think royal, kingdom of priests. Peter takes those words and applies it to the church. The church has the identity of God's people established in Israel. And this was God's plan from the very beginning, when God made his covenant with Abraham. Abraham, the father of our faith, was to be the father of many nations. Abraham's blessed people were to be made up of many nations. This congregation of nations, Jew and Gentile, is now the holy nation distinguished from all the other pagan nations of the earth. And, Peter tells us, what is God's saving purpose for his people? It has not changed. God creates his people by calling them out of darkness that they may praise and glorify him. So like its identity, the church's calling is totally unique. There is not another people on earth set apart specifically to glorify and praise God. There are many organizations today that want to do good in the world. But the church is set out and created to declare God's excellencies to it. There is no one but the church, then, who will worship God in spirit and truth. There is no one but the church who will proclaim his love and mercy to the lost world. <clears throat> there is no one but the church to shine the light of the gospel so that they too may be built into the household of God. The church, the continuing people of God, has this unique call. And when we read the New Testament writer speaking this way, sometimes we want to mourn. Peter seems to be describing a church with better theology, that's more evangelistic, that's more worshipful, with better fellowship than any church we've ever been a part of. And this is the good news today. The same church that existed in Peter's day exists now. Churches today, like Christ's covenant, are no different in their essence than the churches who received this letter in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. Peter is announcing what's true about the church, not your experience in the church. This is what is true whenever a group of sinners have come to Christ and begin to walk together in obedience to him. And that truth has not changed. And yes, our experience on the ground in the church is often very different. Some of us have been hurt by churches. We all know of bad churches, unhealthy churches. We all know that there are times in our own lives where our commitment to the church and our concern for the church lags. But this is why 
the church and belief in the church requires faith. Because it takes faith to say, the church I'm a part of here in this building is God's temple shining a light to the world. We are, together with all our good and with all our sin, really a holy nation of priests serving God. And being joined with all the people who are around you, sitting near you today, is an essential part of your Christian walk and the good news preached to you. Because you need the church. Why? Why do you need the church this way? Because once you were not a people. You were not a people. Well, what about my community in lacrosse? My American citizenship. If anyone was my people, wouldn't it be my own family? Again, it's not that those don't have value. Certainly they do. It's that eternally they have no value. Zoom out far enough and the GDP of every nation hits zero. Every community stops existing at some point. In the grand scheme of 5,000 years, the importance and power of America, of any nation, is negligible. Eventually, not only will no one have your family name, but no one will remember it. But that's not true of you in Christ. You are a people. You are God's people. This is the good news, that Christ has given you an identity with his name, security in his household, and the fellowship of his family eternally. You bear the name of the eternal triune God. But it takes faith to think this way, because it's spiritual, and it is the work of Christ. Let me pray. Dear Jesus Christ, we come to you even though the whole world may reject you. We are so thankful to be called your church. Build your church here in the cross among us. Let Christ's covenant proclaim your excellencies. Let our lives shine the light of the good news in the darkness. Let others know us by our love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.